Hey, it's Brandon here. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. This episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Zenium HR is what we call the bacon savers. We save people's bacon (laughs) from those crazy HR issues that might come up, accurate payroll processing, and so much more. Learn more about Zenium's high-touch HR and payroll services at zeniumhr.com. Okay, this episode is with Carson Tate. I have a conversation with her about employee disengagement. So as it turns out, and maybe you're one of those lucky people, you found fulfilling work. Well, there's a lot of people out there that haven't. Either they're in the wrong role, they're disconnected from the organization's overall purpose and mission, and they're just completely disengaged. So in this episode, we're talking about how do we get people and maybe even ourselves, how do we get clear about what we need out of the workplace? How do we make sure that we love our jobs and that we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves? So you're going to love this conversation with Carson Tate. If you like what you heard, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. We're pretty much in all places imaginable. The other thing I wanted to mention is I have a couple really awesome conversations coming up. I've got Lori Rudiman, which uh, most of you probably know. So I got Lori coming up, and then Lars Schmidt is coming up as well, and a few others. So excited for those ones! So make sure to hit that subscribe button so you get those when they release. Have a great day. Talk to you next week. Carson, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you, and thank you so much for the kind invitation. Oh, you're welcome. So we're going to dive into your book, Own It, Love It, Make It Work, How to Make Any Job Your Dream Job. I love this. Um, There's a lot of disengagement at work. (laughs) (laughs) Especially given the current circumstances. Right. How bad is disengagement right now? It's bad. It's exactly. So the latest Gallup poll is showing that 64% of the U.S. workforce is disengaged, which to me is abysmal. Now, in May, they did a Pulse survey and it was down seven points from there. So it had dipped into the 50, 57-ish. It's gone back up, but it is a pervasive systemic problem that has immense costs for organizations, 450 to $500 billion in lost productivity. We know burnout, health consequences, and it impacts our families. You know, if we're not happy and engaged at work, you get off the Zoom call and you're kind of cranky and you bring that to your partner or your kids or your dog. And that to me is what I think is probably the most unsustainable and just the saddest part. Yeah. And if people don't recognize what disengagement looks like, how would you describe it? I mean, in the book, uh, you wrote the Sunday scaries. And I had never heard that term until like maybe a few weeks back. And then I saw it again in your book and I'm like, that's a real thing. I remember, you know, having like a job in college and I could not get out of bed. And the Sunday scaries are real. Like 
Monday's coming around and you're like miserable. So you're miserable. All right. Yeah. The pit in your stomach. You don't want to get out of bed. You hit snooze so many times on your alarm. Your alarm's like, I'm out. I can't help you at this point. Um, or it's you show up on your Zoom call with your colleagues. You're physically there, but your heart, soul, and mind is elsewhere. You know, you're playing a game on your phone. Um, it's the lack of connection to the work, not going above and beyond, not seeing the value that you produce, that persistent feeling of, this just stinks. Yeah. Like what causes the disengagement? Is it is it from within? Is it the employee? I mean, there's probably a lot of variables that cause the disengagement and the way people are feeling about this. But if you could boil it down to a few things, what do you think it is? Mm-hmm. So... I would boil it down to, from an an employer's perspective, they're going to define engagement as a team member's emotional commitment to the company, connection, willingness to go above and beyond. But in my book and the frame I'm coming at it is about you, you, the individual person and your sense of fulfillment, gratification, feeling seen, valued and heard and understanding that there is meaning and purpose in your work. That's how I would define engagement. At the very end of the book, you, and I think you really, you kind of started it out this way too, but at the very end, you were talking about a chief HR officer that the CEO was introducing. They had bags under their eyes. They looked burned out. And you're like, wow, this person is going to be in charge of 27,000 people. They're the chief HR officer and they look like they hate their job or they're just so severely burned out that like, how is it going to work? I mean, there's a lot of professionals in the same boat, right? There are so many professionals, and I intentionally anchored the beginning and the end of the book because I think a lot of us at some point in our career can recognize ourselves in this chief HR officer. Dead eyes, sunken into her face, pallor, like just the energy to stand up and talk to us. And you're like, what? you're responsible for people and you hate your job and the impact it's having on your life. There are so many of us that are suffering from this. And it's the recognition, the piece where it matters is that you can do something about it. You wrote that what's missing from the relationship with the employer is you. Let's unpack that a bit because I think that I mean, there's a lot of variables at play in the in the workplace. Your manager, the culture, the purpose of the organization, your position. But I love your point in a sense that it does start with us. So maybe unpack that a bit because I think um, for a lot of people that might be hard to hear like, oh, like we have the power to control our thinking and decision making and you know, like just elaborate on that. So you do. And so I look at it as we need to look at engagement from a different lens. And so I'm looking at it as the relationship that you have with your employer which your direct experience with your employer, Brandon, we both know is with your manager. So that relationship is built off of social exchange therapy, which is about give and take in a mutually beneficial way. It takes two people in a relationship to make it work. And we know this in our personal lives and, you know, our dating life and if we're married. But we forget about this in the relationship with our employer. And so what this means is that if you want to be engaged and fulfilled, You can have ask of your employer, of course, compensation, benefits, safe work environment. And it means you've got to bring something, your skills and knowledge, Uh and know, hey, you know what? I like verbal praise, my name on the wall. I like both of these, but you're never doing it for me. So I don't feel connected and seen and valued. That's where you've got the ownership and the power to recognize what you need, 
voice it, knowing that this is going to create a mutually beneficial win for everyone. Mm-hmm. You wrote something that like just just totally like punched me in the stomach. I think we all can relate to this. So you post you post a question that I just I, I loved. You said, "Have you ever been in a relationship where you hoped and prayed that the other person would magically change?" And I mean, this is true of our relationships at home, our manager, our employer. Why is that not a good approach, though? I mean, just hoping and wishing that somebody's going to change. That just doesn't sound very proactive. It's not proactive. And we've all been there. We've all been there. It's not proactive. And the recognition is that the only person who can change in a relationship is you. You can't make someone change. You can't force change. Ultimately, for anything to change, it's how you either think about the relationship, how you act in the relationship, how you choose to look at the benefits of the relationship. The power rests solely in you. One of my favorite books that I think I read right out of college, I had some really good mentors when I was young, and they gave me How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's a prime example of what you just described, which is like, it usually, it starts with, Internally, it's like the right questions to ask people, or you give people what they want, and and it's really about the other person. And I I just wanted to make that comment because I think some of those foundational pieces are just so important to realize. Like we have a lot of power, we just need to you know take action and realize that it does start with us. Absolutely, you have a tremendous amount of power, and power in, in the sense that you bring something to the relationship. So you do have expectations. And the power is, are you willing to do the work and get clear enough on what you need in this relationship for it to work? This is like dating one-on-one. Right. And why we haven't thought about it, I'm not saying we're dating our employers. I know I'm talking to HR people. I was in HR. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that you have that same level of intentionality and clarity of what you need, recognition of what they need, and we work together for a mutually beneficial outcome. Yeah. You wrote something in the book that I then posed to a colleague of mine uh, earlier. And it, we actually, we had some really good dialogue about it. So you said something to the effect of, remember what your best day was at work and how you felt or something like that. And I just remember asking a colleague like, hey, what was your best day? I mean, she's been here like 18 years and I've been at the company for 12 years. So we've, we've had a long history together. And I was just like, what was your best day ever? And just her going back and thinking about that, like the way somebody made you feel or something that you accomplished. And I love doing that because it gets your mind to like kind of reframe it and say, you know what, I can go create more days just like that. Yeah. So what we do is we're saying, you've been successful at this before. You've had great days at work. You've enjoyed your work. You've connected to it. Let's pull it back. Mm -hmm. Then let's start to peel it and look at, oh, you know what? I got to solve this really challenging problem for a client and it helped them. Oh, I felt so great about that. And so then what we want to do is once we look at it, how do we create more opportunities Mm -hmm. for more best days of work? And this is where the ownership comes in. You got to know what it is. And then we're going to start to structure and ask for it. You interviewed a lot of people across different positions and industries for this book and probably the other work that you do. Of those people that were fulfilled, and you can tell that they were fulfilled in their careers and their jobs and just in life in general, do you see any common themes about about why they're engaged and love their work? 
goes back to where we started. They have an internal locus of control, which means they recognize that they've got agency and power to make choices in the world and the world doesn't happen to them. And so they take that same framework to work, but they're also radically Mm self-aware. They know what they need in terms of recognition. They know their strengths and how they benefit the company. They know their growing edge. You know, they know where they need to develop. They're great at relating to people and want more relationships like that. And then they also see value in the work that they do. And those elements are what they have used over and over again to create these affirmative, positive, successful experiences at work. And I intentionally, Brandon, talked to people in lots of different industries and in jobs that you would think, no way, is that your quote, dream job or could you love it? And they did (laughs) because they were doing the exact same. They were doing these really core elemental things that enabled them to really love their work. Yeah, that's fascinating. I imagine from that that work that you did in interviewing people, you came to this model that you created. So what's the what's the model for the dream job? So the model was built in three ways. Yes, through interviews, looking for you know, the root causes of success. So what are those root causes of success? Then experience coaching our clients and trying things on. Um, and then also deep dive into the academic research. So the model has five parts. So, or five essentials, as Mm -hmm. I like to call Mm -hmm. them, to build your dream job. The base of the model is you, your skills, experiences, and values. And then the five essentials that you admit and identify your recognition and appreciation needs. You align your strengths, which means you know what they are and you align them to the goals of the company and your team so that you can do more of the work you love. That you develop yourself so you know where you need to grow, what new skills and capabilities that you cultivate authentic relationships. That's the cultivation. And then finally, you design your work for more meaning. So this model would assume that people do have power and control over their their dream job. But what if there's fear? And, and you have this section in the book about fear, about taking action. They're fearful for their job. They're fearful for whatever may come next. So what do you do in those situations where you just feel disempowered? So I start with name and claim your fears. And I use an example, which is going to date me, but there was a movie in the early 80s called Gremlins about these little furry creatures. And I I think we might be close in age because you're you're giggling, you're going with me on this. But these cute little, just imagine a cute little teddy bear, really small, cute and cuddly. But if you get them wet, they turn into these things that eat you. Very scary concept for me. And so I go to see Gremlins and I didn't sleep for a week and Every night I go to get my dad and we have to turn on the lights to prove there are no gremlins under my bed. So the first step is to name and claim the fears, which is turning on the lights. And so we work with our clients just to really name them. And I push really hard. I want the worst case scenario. If you ask for this, I'm going to get fired and I'll never be employed again. I'm like, let's just pull it, you know, I want to see it all out there because the first experience is an exhale of we've shined a light on it. Okay. Yeah. Now we have something we can work with. Now we can think about what is the real ask? How do we have a crucial conversation or a courageous conversation with your manager? What is it that you really want? Where is this just your brain's negativity bias keeping you trapped, right? Or where is this just some old patterning around you're not good enough or worthy enough? We can start to look at it because we turned on the lights and we're like, oh, there are no gremlins. Let's just explore what's really going on and how we choose to move through it. 
Yeah, it does seem like there's a level of like awareness that needs to happen before we can really start through this model that you've created. Are there any exercises that you recommend even just like to recognize the level of disengagement from our work or unhappiness that we have or the fears? Like, is there anything that you recommend besides just like writing a list or I know you have some exercises that you've gone through. You did the name and claim the fears really as just a a list making exercise. I have put in the book an assessment to help you kind of evaluate where is that rub, where is it not really helpful. So that's in there. And then the other place I always tell folks is just notice when your day ends. So when your work day ends, you log off the Zoom or if you're outside working outside, you come home. What's the first thing you talk about? Is it everything that went wrong during the day? Or do you have a few things that were positive? And that's that's usually pretty illuminating in two fronts. One, it'll illuminate that the brain's negativity bias. Our brains are wired to scan for threats. It's always going to look for worst case scenarios, how it kept us alive. And hmm, you might be in a work sucks mode that we need to address. And then the exercise on the brain's negativity bias is now we need to retrain it to focus on the positive. So just like you go to the gym to train your muscles to get stronger, we have to train this brain muscle to stop scanning and saying everything about this is wrong. And so the easiest way that I've done it with clients, we do it in our house, is very simple, two roses and a thorn. Mm. So at the end of the day, you share with your partner, your dog, your friend, your spouse, whomever, two good things. I'm going to talk, talk to my dog about that. It's okay. I'm fine with that. If, if, that's, if, if I have you talking about it, that, that's a great first step. Um, two roses, two positive things. And then the thorn. You know, we're not going to be Pollyanna. Yeah. We're going to practice that cadence every night just to really help our brain start to scan back through our day and recognize I've got at least two roses. In the book, you talk about leveraging strengths. And I love this because I think we should leverage our strengths and we'd be happier in work for sure. And Marcus Buckingham talks about this in his books. What if we are not in a position to leverage our strengths though? Perhaps miscast? Like what do we do if a role is not really aligned with our strengths? Oh, now we're talking about job crafting. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yes. So we have a couple of different options. So you know your strength. So the first place we can start is the task in your job. Is there a task that is closely related to your strength that we could modify the scope and nature of so you're using more of your strength? So do we have an opportunity there? Or can you do something new in your job that's strength-based, but back to this relationship, this mutually beneficial relationship that your manager is so excited for you to do because it adds such value. So we start with tasks. Can I change the scope and nature or can I add on? Then the second one would be a relationship. So let's say, yeah, I'm in a job. I can't change my task. Could you build a relationship with someone or a group where you can use your strengths, but it's going to give you an opportunity. It's going to give you some wins. You're going to feel good about it to help support you as you do the work to create a job and or find a job that's more aligned with your strengths. So I tell the story of a coaching client of ours who really wanted to develop women. She felt passionate about it, but that wasn't her job description. She ran a huge business, huge P&L. She had to run the business. Mentoring, coaching women was not part of it. But you know what she did? She joined her organization's Women's Connect group 
had an opportunity to do this. It augmented her work at the company. It was so fulfilling. That's a great example. And then the third way you can do it is cognitively. So think differently about your job. I tell the story of I had a job I hated early on in my career and I was selling, I was doing cold sales. Oh, I've been there. I've been oh, there. It's such a good training. I'm, I'm so grateful. It is great training. I am too. I, I can relate to you. So grateful. What I had to do is move from thinking about my job as, you know, 50 cold calls a day to what is it that you're actually trying to do for your clients? And when I realized that my job, I sold booth space um, for conferences, that most of my clients were female, first-time business owners, and the conferences and the trade shows I was selling, that was their storefront. Like, this was how they were able to bring their products and services to market. Like, I was an enabler of small businesses, particularly women. Yeah. Okay, now... Yeah. I love that. So yeah. that feels really different than smile and dial. Right. This has been overplayed, but it brings me back to that story of, um, was it the, the janitor at NASA? Like somebody had asked him about like, what's, you know, what's your job? And it's put a man on the moon. And it's like, huh? You're, you're a janitor. But this person had been so connected to what the job is ultimately doing, which is the purpose of the organization. And, and that takes practice in your brain. It does take practice. And I'm sure you have some listeners that completely glazed over and gave me a big eye roll as they heard this line around, oh, yes. And it works. So the cognitive reframing has some deep psychological roots on why it works. And I would suggest your HR listeners, they try to do this all the time, connecting the team to the purpose. I mean, this isn't new. And the organizations that thrive, those team members are so connected to the customers they serve, the communities in which they work, and everyone benefits. I'm just suggesting that you do that work and you see your job and your unique job as a really meaningful whole that enables someone to go to the moon. I love it. I love it. The third step in your model is the develop. So developing new skills and learning. I always find it like reinvigorating. Like when I learn something new, it just unlocks this other portion of my brain. And it gives me like, it might give me a quick jolt of engagement, but especially if I can put that to practice, in the future, in my job, it makes me so engaged and it makes me excited and I want to tell people. So talk about the just the development and learning. It's a huge section. It's so much to unpack. But if you could recommend, you know, people go out and strategically develop skills that are going to make them more engaged, like where would you advise people to start? I typically would say, let's build on strengths. I, I've, I'm a big fan of that. How do we do more of that? And I would suggest that they develop the relationships that help them see beyond the day-to-day of their work. So can they do some job shadowing? Can they find a mentor? Can they engage in an action learning project where they see leaders in action and they're learning at the same time? Just to broaden the scope. Because what I've seen in the pandemic is a contraction and we've gotten even more myopic and more focused singularly on what we do. And I think we need to come back broader to start to see the broader implications of our work. And I think it's a really fun way to grow and develop that way, in addition to training and coaching. But I think those are really engaging ways to learn. Are there like really easy tactical ways that people can go out and learn 
new things. Um, I think you wrote like mentorship, like how do we go find a mentor? Like what are some things we can do that will help us cultivate like a, just a learning mentality? I think it, learning mentality starts first with questions and being willing to ask questions. What if, why not? Have you thought about, have we explored? I think it starts there. And then taking that, we obviously know there's a plethora of online training options, but I really think mentorship can be so powerful. And even if your company doesn't have a formal mentorship program, that doesn't mean you can't reach out to someone you admire and be really clear on what you want, right? This isn't coaching. This is mentorship and start to cultivate that relationship with that person through a series of questions and really wanting to learn more and what's their journey and insights along the way. Yeah. You seem like you, I mean, you obviously believe what you're talking about. You have taken ownership for your own role. You're, you've built a, a great business. What was the turning point for you? Like, what's your story? And I, maybe I should have started this way, but I think it's kind of fun to to unpack some of this and sort of look back at your history. Like, you probably had the Sunday scaries. You probably were miserable at one point, which turned you on to this this work. So how did you get there? Yes. So I did have an experience, the Sunday night scaries, and I've had the, you know, jerk boss, whatever you want to call a micromanager. I've done. Yeah, that's what I really, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be if we, yes, this is clearly PG-13, asshole boss, and um, had to do the deep work myself to, you have to pay the bills and, like, it can't just be about that. So that was a piece of it. But then the other piece for me really happened when watching my clients and client organizations really suffer. Like the emotional toll it was taking on individuals, the conversations, and really feeling powerless. I, I don't know how to help. I don't know how to help you think differently about your own engagement. Or telling the leader, I'm not sure. You're doing everything right according to the employee engagement playbook. You're doing a magnificent job. I don't know why the needle's not moving. And that really was the catalyst for action. And once I dug in, I was like, well, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. So we can't keep throwing more money at compensation, benefits, managers coaching their team members, office spaces. There's got to be another perspective to move the needle. And that's when I was like, okay, it's you. You in this relationship. At what point did you read mindset by Carol Dweck because you mentioned it in the book and I don't know if it was it had to been early on in your career because I mean that frame of mind because what you're describing with most people when they're disengaged is the fixed mindset right mindset, and then right. what we're describing here is this growth mindset and I think that's a really powerful book so if if you would recommend any books or any any material besides your own that would help people really step into this like okay I'm gonna take control of my work mindset You've already named it. Absolutely. And I read that book when I was 18. Really? That's incredible. I think I read it when I was like 25. Or and then I also would say the other insight I've had around this is I was a, an athlete in high school and in college. And I do believe, and I learned this really from my college coach, I really don't like running uphill. I'm a runner. I ran cross country and track, and I really don't like hills. I'm good at them. I don't really don't like them that much. You just rather go around a track a bunch of times? Oh, no, I just, oh, yeah, you can't change the course. Only thing you can change yourself. And that message was really internalized in high school and came, I really got it in college, that in the middle of a race, it's just you and the course. 
and that dirt doesn't change. Mind blown. You change. Mind blown. I mean, it's such a powerful message. So I know I jumped around in this this interview, and it was a great discussion. So fun. Uh, great content in your book, too. So I encourage people to go check it out. Carson, where can people learn more about you, your work, um, you speaking, anything like that, that people can see more of you? I know this is an audio-only podcast, but I'm sure you're out publicly showing your face somewhere. Yes, um, in our virtual world. So um, CarsonTate.com, you can go there and take the assessment that I was talking about, how to really figure out how to make your job your dream job. My book is on Amazon, own it, love it, make it work. And if you go to CarsonTate.com, you can see what I'm doing, where I'm talking and speaking and courses that we have that you can dial in for. Carson, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. 